All righty. Well, before we get to our baptisms, um, we want to spend some time looking to the Word of God. The psalmist said, in your light we see light. And so we want to glean from the light of Scripture as we think about baptism. And so uh, Pastor Keith had already read in your hearing from, um, from the gospel according to Mark. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 6, another passage that we will look at this morning. Romans chapter 6, I'll begin reading in verse 1. So if you have uh, one of the church Bibles in front of you, um, it is on page 1,520. 1,520. The fun thing about a new translation uh, is that all the editions have the exact same pagination. So even though my Bible may not look exactly like the church Bible in front of you, If you have any copy of the Legacy Standard Bible, it should be the same page. 1,520, Romans chapter 6, I'll begin reading in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would walk no longer, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been justified from sin. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we do again come before you and ask for your help as we think of this matter of baptism And as we look at these two baptisms of Jesus and of believers, and may we see the glorious realities that they point to, and may we believe what you have revealed to us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We, to be sure, live in a day and age of pictures. I was pondering the reality that I probably have more pictures of my children from this past summer than pictures that exist of me in my entire childhood. Because we have these little computer devices that sit in our pockets and we can take pictures whenever we want. We can do videos whenever we want with the quality of picture that far surpassed any cameras that we had, certainly in my time period growing up. We live in a day and age of pictures. Well, Jesus and the apostles, and even before that, during the time of Moses and the prophets, they didn't have cameras, in case you didn't know that. Uh, But nonetheless, they still had pictures. They had ceremonies. They had ritual. (coughs) And these ceremonies and rituals 
pointed to realities, just like <coughs> our pictures that we have on our cameras point to realities and give us reminders of certain things. We got pictures um, of family vacations and traveling experiences and different events in our lives. So also there's pictures <coughs> in the Bible that point to realities, that point to truth, that point to things that we are supposed to think about and believe. And two of the primary pictures that the writers of the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles, left for us as pictures to point to realities are communion and baptism. Okay? Communion and baptism are the two great pictures that God has left us in the New Testament that point to one message. Two pictures, one message. The message is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And this morning we're going to zero in on one of those pictures, namely baptism, even though we're going to partake of communion later as well. Uh, And we're going to think about baptism and its meaning and its significance. The, in 1689, the year after it was legal to be a Baptist in England, the leaders of the Baptist churches, as they emerged from the underground in England, they published a confession of faith that they had been using as their confession of faith for many years prior to that, but it was illegal to publish it publicly. So in 1689, they published the London Baptist Confession. And in their chapter on baptism, which is uh, chapter 29, it says this, Baptism is an ordinance in the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized a sign a sign, a picture, if you will. That's my translation of it. A sign of his fellowship with him, his fellowship with Jesus, his partnership, his union with Jesus in his death and resurrection and of being engrafted into him of the remission of sins. That's just a fancy phrase for forgiveness of sins. And of giving up and of giving up un- into God through Jesus Christ, to walk in newness of life. And as you might expect, the confession goes on to explain that this ordinance is to be done on those who are believers, those who uh, profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have repented. That's why we believe here in what's called credo-baptism and not pedo-baptism. Credo meaning believer's baptism, and not uh, baptism of infants or children uh, who are not of the age of understanding. And so that's a little bit about uh, introducing your thinking to baptism. But I, I want us to kind of back up in the, the way the Bible speaks of baptism and go to the baptism of Jesus, and then we're going to look at the baptism of, of, of believers. And so... Back to the first passage that was read in your hearing. And so uh, we're going to look at two, two pictures. One picture of baptism that points forward and one that points backwards. This first one in Mark chapter 1, it points forward. 
In Mark 1, 9, it says, Now it happened in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. This is on page 1,341. Jesus comes out of the water, it says, and immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens. You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. So Mark records here Jesus' baptism. And, and, and for us, it seems a little bit odd, right? Okay? Because we have people being baptized this morning and uh, baptism is it's the initiatory rite in following Jesus. Um, and uh, we do it as a picture of, as was mentioned in the London Baptist Confession, a picture of the forgiveness of sins, as a testimony of walking in newness of life. And you think about it, so why on earth would Jesus be baptized? I'm glad you asked the question. Because I believe the baptism of Jesus is a kind of prophecy. It's a prophecy of what he was going to undergo. And there's hints of this prophecy that are given in the event of the baptism. There's, there's so much more we could say about this, but, but certainly, what, what do we see here? We see the Spirit of God descending in the form of what? In the form of... Of a dove. Now, for us, that doesn't seem very significant because we weren't reared in Jewish culture in the Old Testament to know the significance of a dove. But if you were raised in Jewish culture, immersed in Torah, you would have been instructed from a young age that the dove was one of God's sacrificial animals. It was laid out in the first of those sacrifices in the book of Leviticus. Uh, you know, you could br- either bring uh, something from the flock, uh, you know, sheep, or you can bring something from the herd, cattle. That would have been a more expensive kind of sacrifice when it came to that first sacrifice of the burnt offerings in chapter 1 of Leviticus. Or, if you were one of the po folk and you couldn't afford from the flock, sheep, If you couldn't afford from the herd, you'd bring a dove. Birds are cheap. My chickens only cost like $2 a piece. A dove is a cheap animal. And you would lay your hands on that animal, or one of your hands on that animal, and you would sacrifice that animal as a transference of your guilt to that animal, and that animal would be consumed on the altar, incinerated with the whole burnt offerings. All of it was to be consumed. Listen to what Moses writes in Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 14. It says, but the offering, uh, but, uh, but if this 
If his offering to Yahweh is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring near his offering from the turtle doves or from the young pigeons, and the priest shall bring it near to the altar and wring off its head and offer it up in smoke on the altar. And its blood is to be drained out on the side of the altar. And he shall also take away its crop and its feathers and cast it beside the altar eastward to the place of the ashes. Then he shall tear it by its wings, but he shall not separate it. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar, on the wood which is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a smoothing aroma to Yahweh. And so I'm convinced that the reason why God had the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus in the form of a dove was to communicate the reality that what was going on here was a picture of sacrifice. A picture of substitution. Just as that burnt offering was bearing the guilt of the worshiper and was consumed on the altar instead of the worshiper himself, so also this recipient of baptism, namely Jesus, was going to be a sacrifice, a substitute. There's also indication of this, of echoes that point backwards of judgment and ascending from judgment in new creation. Now, <clears throat> what's the game we play on our retreat? What is it called? Apples to Apples? I meant to text Tiffany this morning. Where is she at? I can't. Is that what it's called? Word associations. Okay. So let's do some word association biblical trivia with you this morning. I say dove and water. And what do you think of? Flood, right? The flood narrative of Genesis chapter 6 through 9. And what was going on in the flood? Here you have the waters of judgment. And Noah as the representative of humanity. Coming out of those waters of judgment into a kind of new creation. Listen to Sinclair Ferguson here, here. He says, There may be a general echo here of the work of the Spirit hovering like a bird over the waters of the first creation. And also here a possible allusion to the flood narrative uh, and descent of the dove on the new creation which arose out of the destruction of the earth under God's judgment in Genesis 8. Both echoes may in fact be present underline uh, for us that Jesus is the second man and the last Adam to become a life-giving spirit and one who ascends out of the cursed world here. And so, we have echoes of a past judgment and kind of resurrection as the, 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 the waters of judgment and the flood what emerged out of that was a kind of new creation, a deliverance. And we see the same pattern again in the book of Exodus with, with God's people emerging through the waters, going into the promised land, a, a picture of deliverance. God delivering His people through the waters of judgment into newness of life. A picture of death, burial, and resurrection. 
Well, you still may be a little bit suspicious here. But let's look at the gospel of Mark itself. Turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 35 and following. You remember the context. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. They, uh, actually Matthew records, I believe, that it was their mommy who came to Jesus, which is rather embarrassing, uh, and, they, and, and pleads with Jesus for James and John to sit at Jesus' left hand and right hand, pulling for position. And uh, so in Mark 10, 35, it says, Then James and John, two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's always a dangerous statement, right? You know, sometimes the kids do that. Dad, I want you to do whatever I want, okay? Agree to it before I tell you what it is. Secure, they try to secure that commitment. And he said to them, uh, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant that we may sit, one at your right hand and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. And then he asked this question, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. So here this matter of baptism comes up again, right? But it comes up in a, in a different kind of way. It's not the baptism of Jesus. And, and I don't think Jesus is talking about uh, believer's baptism here. But he's highlighting the reality that baptism points to something. He's asking James and John, are you willing to die the same way that I'm going to die? Are you willing to drink the cup that I am going to drink? And several chapters later, this is his cry in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember? As he talks to the Father, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Because he's about to drink the cup of God's wrath through death and resurrection. And he asks also to James and John, are you willing to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized with? Again, he's pointing, he's telling them that he is about to be baptized in blood. He is about to die, be buried, and rise from the dead. You see, friends, this is what baptism is a picture of. It's a picture of death and burial. Going under the waters is going under the waters of the judgment of death. And coming up out of those waters is a picture of resurrection. And so Jesus, I believe, back in our passage in Mark chapter 1, his baptism is a picture, a prophetic picture that points forward. It has echoes in the Old Testament of ascending out of the waters of judgment in the flood narrative in the Red Sea. But it points forward ultimately to his own death, burial, and resurrection. And as if this was not enough, one further evidence of this is here. If you turn to Mark chapter 15, verse 37, 
Mark 15, 37. Do you remember how Mark described the heavens in Mark chapter 1? It's very graphic language. In fact, it's, it's, the Greek word is schizmazo. It's where we get the word schism. Uh, he, he says that the heavens were torn apart and God began to speak and say, this is my beloved son. Well, that phrase only occurs twice in the gospel of Mark of tearing. And the second time it occurs here is in Mark chapter 15, verse 37, which I think Mark wants us to think back to the baptism of Jesus with this statement. It says, and Jesus uttered a loud cry, breathed his last, and the veil of the sanctuary was torn. That's our word, torn, just like the heavens were torn open. The veil which separated, in a sense, the very presence of God from the people, which the temple in itself was a picture of heaven, a picture of Eden. It's torn from top to bottom, and the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw, uh, saw the way he breathed his last, and he said, truly this man was God's son, or the son of of God, which, by the way, is how the Gospel of Mark starts, right? In the beginning was of the Gospel, the Son of God. And so, the language that Mark is communicating with the dove descending from heaven, the Spirit of God in the form of the dove as a sacrifice, the language of tearing that drives us right to the cross where Jesus is suspended between heaven and earth and the temple veil is torn in two, highlighting access is given now to humanity through the blood of the cross, through the sacrifice. Also through the language, the conversation Jesus has with James and John, asking them, are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am able to? The very language of immersion speaks of the picture of death, burial, and resurrection. All of this, my friends, is a picture that points forward. It pointed to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The centerpiece, the crown jewel of the Christian faith. My friend, have you trusted in Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. This is the only way you can have access to heaven. You can't get there based upon your own righteousness, your own goodness, your own church attendance, no matter how hard you try, any kind of, of moral self-improvement. I mean, think about that. How's that going anyways? I mean, how are you doing on your New Year's resolutions that started back in January? How's that diet going? We don't do very well at that. We need a representative. We need one to be that sacrifice on our behalf. And this is what baptism points to. Jesus' baptism pointed to his death and resurrection later on, several years later. My friend, entrust yourself to Jesus' death and resurrection. It is your only hope. Don't delay. You don't know when you're going to die. It could be 10 years from now. It could be 10 minutes from now. We're not promised tomorrow. 
The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Harden not your heart. Don't stiff arm the Lord. Come to an end of yourself where you realize you have nothing in your hands to bring. No kind of righteousness to offer this great God to commend yourself before Him. Come to Him with an empty hand and lay hold of Jesus and what He did on your behalf. So that's the picture that points forward. But we also have to talk about the picture that points backwards. Romans chapter 6. In Romans 6, the Apostle Paul, in those first five chapters, has laid out the glorious doctrine of justification by faith alone, highlighting that sinners who are united to Christ are forgiven and forever forgiven of all their sins. They are justified, pardoned, acquitted before God. And so the natural objection to the gospel, and this, by the way, is always one good telltale sign that you're preaching the gospel when, when somebody says, well, if that's the case, Matt, if we're forgiven of all of our sins, then people will just do whatever they want. That's how you know you're preaching the gospel. <laughs> because that's the same objection that the Apostle Paul got when he preached the gospel. In Romans 6.1, it says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Paul, are you saying that the more I sin, the more God forgives me, and so I'll just continue on in sin so that God's grace reaches and covers more of my sin? Paul's response in verse 2, may it never be. How shall we who died died to sin still live in it? Paul's argument is, no, 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 we don't continue in sin that grace may increase because you died. You have died. You have died to sin. There was a funeral. And then he lays out the evidence of their death. Their baptism that they underwent when they went under the waters and came up out of the waters was a testimony to the reality that they had died and risen from the dead. Verse 3, Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? That's strange. You have been baptized into Jesus' death? Baptism is a picture, as the, that old London Baptist confession says, of your fellowship with Jesus in his death and resurrection. The believer has been united to Jesus. Now, whether you like it or not, you were born in this world united to somebody. You were born into this world united to Adam. He was your, he's your representative. You didn't vote for him? <laughs> He was given to you as your representative and he's not a good representative. You don't want him as your representative because he failed. He failed miserably. He rebelled against the Lord in the Garden of Eden. You need a new representative. And when you place your trust in Jesus, you get a new representative. You get the Lord Jesus as your representative. And you are united to him in his death and resurrection. Just as he died and came out of the waters of judgment and rose from the dead, so you have been united to him in his death and resurrection. 
you are united to Jesus in a representative way because when Jesus died on the cross, he was your representative. He paid the hell that you deserve. You died actually when you were converted. You died to sin and rose to newness of life. And you died professedly at your baptism. Martin Luther used to say when he was tempted by the devil, get away from me, I'm baptized. And I think what he meant by that is, I died. I've been united to Jesus. Now Luther also had other ways of getting the devil away, passing gas and other things, but we'll save that for another sermon. Luther was an interesting man. Certainly, this picture of baptism is a picture of death and resurrection. And so, for the believer, you have died to sin and risen to newness of life. You've been united to Jesus and your baptism is a picture of that union. Your relationship to sin has radically changed. Your relationship to God has radically changed. Notice the language that Paul gives here in Romans 4. You have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so we too might walk in newness of life. It's true that The waters of baptism, they don't make one acceptable to God. But the reality they point to is what makes one acceptable. Jesus' death and resurrection. And it's also a picture that now you walk in a resurrected life. A newness of life. So that now you are alive to God. Some years ago, when I played baseball, it was my 15-year-old baseball team. It was a Babe Ruth league. And I was cut from my team. They had another first baseman. That was my position as a lefty. I played first base. And they cut me. I was off the team. They crushed me. Another team picked me up. And we got new jerseys. Not the same jerseys as my old team, but a new jersey. And this new jersey, in a sense, was a symbol that that was my old team. This is my new team. It was a very symbolic way of saying, now I belong to another. And to the inflation of my own head, we were able to Knock my old team out of the playoffs. But baptism is like putting on the team jersey. It's a picture of a new identity, new relationships, a new life. It's a kind of renunciation of the old life. It points to the realities that we've been united with Christ and we're not the same person we once were. We're accepted before God because we have a new representative and we died with Jesus and we rose to newness of life. 
Friends, do you struggle with identity, who you are? If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, you have been united to the Lord Jesus Christ. You have died and you have risen to newness of life in Christ. You don't have to struggle for a place to fit in in this world because guess what? You don't. You're not supposed to. But you do fit in with the family of God. You are one of Christ's own. He represents you. There's a story of the early church teacher Augustine who before his conversion to Christ lived a life of wickedness and debauchery and sexual immorality. And after his conversion, he was walking along the way and a woman of disrepute who he had known in the past approached him and called out his name, Augustine, Augustine, it is I. Augustine didn't answer, he just kept walking. Augustine, Augustine, it is I. He kept walking. Finally, he looked up at the poor woman of disrepute. And as he began running away from her, he says, yes, but it's no longer I. It is not I. And he kept running. Augustine realized something that his own baptism pointed to. That he had been united with Christ and he was a different person. And he had a different life. And he would walk in a different direction. This is what baptism teaches us. And so... It's a picture that points to two realities. One point, points to one reality, I'm sorry, two pictures. The baptism of Jesus points forward to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Believer's baptism points backwards to the death and resurrection of Jesus and our union with him in that death and resurrection. Well, now we have the opportunity to remember the death and resurrection with the water baptism, but also with communion and so we'll have the men come forward and pass out the elements and we'll have the others come up to sing and lead us in song